0: You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc.
1: Welcome to Unsiloed. This is uh, Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here today with William Magnuson, who is a professor of law at Texas A&M Law School, also the author of a couple books, this one right here called For Profit. History of Corporations, and also another one called Blockchain Democracy, Technology, Law, and the Rise of the Crowd. Welcome, William. Thank you so much for having me today, Greg. So a couple of years ago, when I was in law school, I wrote a paper about the corporation, and I made the point that, you know, there's two ways to look at it. One is as a form of kind of delegation upwards, right, where individuals need to create some entity which allows them to coordinate their individual behavior and overcome the difficulties of acting as individuals. But there's an entirely different view, which is like delegating downward, where, you know, the state needs to get stuff done and, and uh, its own internal capacities are uh, inadequate. And so they, um, you know, they basically farm out these responsibilities to these quasi-private entities. And I think, you know, within economics, we, we focused on, on the former view, right? And we think of the corporation as solving a collective action problem And we've kind of forgotten this second view. And I think the second view is really more the original view. And it it survives to some extent in the world of law. But even in the world of law, I think we've kind of moved away from this idea that the corporation is a privilege that is handed to private parties by the state and was originally intended to serve as an extension of the public interest or the interest of of the sovereign. And I think in your book, you kind of or trying to bring us back towards a little bit uh, in that direction to make us aware of this dual purpose. And do you think that because you're you're teaching in a law school and you teach corporate law, right, there are these these similarities between kind of corporations and governments. I I did things really weird when I was in law school. I took corporate law first, then administrative law, and then constitutional law. And so my view is completely distorted, I guess, because I saw constitutions as just like, oh, these are big kind of corporate charters. But I think most people do it, do it in the other way. So do you think that this division between, say, private and the public, the way we think about it, I mean, it's kind of an artifact of the modern view of the world, isn't it?
0: Yeah, that's right. I, I think that, as you mentioned, I've, I've actually thought a lot about that question about what is the difference between a charter and a constitution. I have in the back of my mind, one of these days I'm going to write an article. I've yet to decide whether it is called Corporate Constitutional Law or constitutional corporate law, but it's one or the other. And I do think there are these similarities between right, a government, which is supposed to be governing a people, and then a corporation, which is supposed to be governing a group of employees, directors, shareholders, and maybe maybe they have other broader duties as well. Uh, but yeah, so one of the core purpose behind writing this book was to rediscover why we created corporations. Right? So why was it that we as a government as we as a, a society created these institutions and granted them particular legal privileges, right? Because that, after all, is how a corporation comes to existence in the first place is that it is a legal entity created by the state, right? The only reason why corporations can exist is that courts recognize them as having certain privileges that were granted to them either by nowadays state corporations laws or in the past it would be granted by say, the Queen of England. Uh, And so one of the purposes behind the book was to rediscover the thoughts and the ideas of the people who were in the process of creating the original corporations. And the book goes back all the way to ancient Rome and explores some of the adventures of the Roman Senate and trying to figure out how to solve the problem of collecting taxes and building roads and uh, supplying their troops. And then it walks through history and shows how that idea has evolved over time into what we now recognize as the modern corporation. And it turns out that there's actually lots of similarities between modern corporations and what corporations look like in ancient Rome, right? They all have these certain core traits, these certain core features, uh, things like limited liability, the ability to act as an individual person, uh, act on their own, um, their ability to uh, separate ownership and management. And these are all the things that economists and corporate law professors talk about in their papers, but they have existed for hundreds, indeed, thousands of years. Yeah, I think it was Blackstone who said that corporations are like the Thames River, right? You know, the, the
1: the water keeps changing, but the river stays the same. And I guess you could say it's like the river, the, the, you know, the ship of Theseus, right? In that, you know, the planks keep getting replaced, but the ship is the same. So maybe kind of review what is so special about the corporation, right? Why is it kind of unique? And why is it that we need sort of a separate body of law called corporate law, right? I mean, couldn't we sort of view it as, a, as an add-on to contract law, right? It's just people getting together and coming up with some kind of agreement, and then the agreement has some terms and conditions. Why do we need this distinctive body of law for corporations?
0: Yeah, I mean, that's a really good question, right? So, and in, in many people, and indeed, some legal theorists, some prominent legal theorists would say, that actually corporations are nothing more than a bunch of contracts, right? They're just contracts between all the individual actors. And they're just agreements that certain people will act on behalf of others. This is what we refer to as agency costs, right? The idea that anytime that you delegate power to an agent to act on your behalf, there's some problems that are going to arise from that relationship, right? The agent may not have the same incentives to pursue your interests as you do. Maybe the agent has some other incentives that they want to pursue and that might come at your own expense, right? This is what Adam Smith said. Adam Smith in his Wealth of Nations, of course, he's famous for talking about the invisible hand and its power to get uh, sort of dispersed individuals acting out of their own interests to actually promote the common good of us all. But he also talked about how terrible corporations were. At the same time, he actually spends a lot of time criticizing the ways that the corporations were working in this day. Uh, he talks a lot about the East India Company and how terrible the East India Company was. One for, uh, it's actually just as a, as a corporate body, because i perspective of the corporate body, it was managing the money of thousands of wealthy individuals in England, but it wasn't managing that money very well. It was promoting largely its own manager's interests. Uh, and then obviously there were also major problems with the way in which it was governing large parts of the world, including most of India. So Adam Smith was really worried about the role of the corporation and its ability to cabin those contracts in between those relationships between society and the corporation, between the corporation and its board of directors, between the board of directors and its shareholders. All these relationships are really complicated. And that's why we have developed over the course of hundreds of years, really the sophisticated models for regulating corporations.
1: And I think in part, you spent a lot of time talking about how the corporations can essentially undermine democracy and they're created for the benefit of the public good, but they can also undermine the public good. But there's also kind of another view, right, of the corporation as sort of a buffer between the state and the people, sort of a part of what we might call civic society. And, you know, I think for me, you know... I spent a lot of time studying the crown, right, and the efforts of the crown to kind of, you know, not only maximize its own wealth, right, but also figure out ways that it could enter into kind of binding commitments with the citizenry. And I've always seen the corporations as playing a very important role, right, whether they're the guilds or whether they're kind of, you know, the city of London or whatever. And so to what extent do corporations serve that kind of mediating function? right? That kind of Tocquevillian function that where it kind of slows down, you know, the tyranny of, of the government by creating some, some buffers.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's a great, that's a great point and a great question. From my perspective, one of the, one of the, each, each, the chapters are structured around particular individual corporations. So in each chapter of, of my book, I focus on one historical corporation of, out, of, sort of outsized importance. And the one that comes to mind when you talk about this mediating influence between the tyranny of government and the populace is um, uh, the Medici bank, right? So the Medici bank is this, right? The world's most famous financial institution, uh, Renaissance Florence. And at the time, right, there were tyrannies basically everywhere throughout Europe. And how did the Medici bank manage to operate in a time when you have, on the one hand, the Vatican that's just uh, you know, 150 miles away that says loaning money is a sin. If you give any money at any interest and ask for interest paid back, uh, that's a sin. You will go to hell for doing it. And on the other hand, you have these warring nation states all around Europe that need money. And so, how do you sort of funnel capital, available capital, to these institutions at the same time that you think that you might go to hell if you do it? And so, the Medici Bank was a great mediating influencer there. So, one of the things that it did by the founder Giovanni di Bici de Medici, and one of the things he discovered, well, how did how did the, he looked into sort of canon law? and the rules on usury. And he said, well, how was it that the Vatican defined usury? Well, it was defined as loaning money and charging anything for the, the benefit of loaning money. So he discovered, well, one way around this would be to structure a loan in such a way that it didn't look like a loan, but it was actually an exchange. It was an exchange of one currency for another. So for example, he would say, uh, okay, we will give you some florins today and we want to exchange it for some English pounds. But you will not want to pay us back those pounds for a year. Oh, we'll just have to, we'll just play around with the exchange rate a little bit. So you'll give us, you know, 15% interest. All right? So it would look in the end of the day, like it was a loan, but it wouldn't be a loan because it was a currency exchange. And if they really wanted to get things tricky, they would actually double up the currency exchanges. So you would say, I'm going to loan you some Florence today. In a year, you'll give us back some English pounds. And then you're going to loan us some English pounds and pay us back and we'll pay you back in Florence. So in the end, it would just be an exchange of Florence for Florence. Uh, and it was a, a sort of a, a blatant runaround of the uh, usury laws. But one of the things that it did is it forced the Medici Bank to get into this world of currency exchanges and interacting with the English king and, uh, and dukes and popes and nobles all around Europe. So it ended up creating a really international business with branches all around Europe, serving as an intermediary between sometimes tyrannous governments and the people who needed money. Well, sometimes the the corporations are stronger than the
1: governments. I mean, you talk in a later chapter about Exxon and some of the multinationals. And You know, they seem to be much more resilient and permanent than some of the governments that they're interacting with. And you also talk about how the East India Company acted in many ways as an actual government, right? And you didn't talk about sort of the Virginia Company and the Massachusetts Bay Company and all sorts of other companies that were also chartered governments. But it does seem that it's very difficult to draw a clean line between what we might think of as government and what we might think of as a corporation, You know, most corporations are are governments, right? And even within the government, I mean, I I always thought of parliament as sort of a a corporation, right? City of London was a corporation.
0: Yeah, no, that's a great point. I mean, you think about who influences your lives more today. Is it the government or is it a corporation? Well, you know, most people are spending eight, nine hours a day working for the corporation. Most people are not doing that for the government. Um, So that gives you a pretty clear uh, indication of the importance of corporations today. Uh, And also, and historically, right, there have been lots of times in which corporations have actually served just as governments, just not even de facto, but de jure governments, for example, in the East India Company, but also with some of the corporations that came over and founded America. My Canadian friends are still constantly reminding me that I should have included a chapter on the Hudson Bay Company. They, They really wanted that chapter in there. But there's lots of cases throughout history where corporations do serve as governments because, right, they are serving as an arm of government when the roman republic first created the idea of the corporation something that they referred to as the societas publicanorum it was a society of publicans publicans meant they were doing things they were government contractors they were working for the public and the corporation initially was viewed as an arm of the government right we're giving you privileges and in return you were supposed to be contributing to some idea of the common good now that how exactly you define the common good depends on who's creating it. Um but it has always been connected or it has historically been connected with that idea that the corporation should serve to promote the common good. Now each of the chapters is a
1: story about a particular company, but they each come with a bit of a lesson. And I think part of the story is about how we responded to some of the pathologies or problems that came from each of the companies that you highlight and how you know, we've evolved a, a set of laws and norms that are designed to, in part, keep kind of companies to their proper role. And so maybe you could talk a bit about, I mean, the part of this story that I find particularly interesting, you didn't go into it in depth, but it's, it's there in the background, is kind of the transition from this kind of ultra vires view of the company, right? Where the company has a very chartered for a very specific purpose, And if it deviates from that purpose, then it's in violation to this notion that, well, you can set up a company and and as long as you're in conformity with the law, you can do it for any reason. You don't have to justify why you're creating the company.
0: Well, it's funny that you mentioned ultra-virates. I was actually just this morning talking with a student of mine about Wizwall, this famous case of a corporation that was chartered for the sole purpose of building a plank road. Which was a form of road that apparently did not work very well, and so they tried. To, they tried to get into other businesses, but they it was ultra virus. It was beyond the authorities of the corporation, right? It was only chartered for a specific purpose, and it couldn't do anything else. But yeah, so this was a historical feature of the corporation. Your corporations, in order to be created, would have to go in front of the sovereign, the monarch and ask for a specific charter to do whatever it was that they they wanted to do, right? The East India Company had to say, we want to trade to the East Indies. Now, what that meant was that they would have to justify themselves, right? You had to go to the court, go to the Senate and say, we want to do this. We want to trade with the East Indies. And here's what we think you will get out of it, right? There was this built into the whole model of the corporation was this idea that whenever you wanted to create a new corporation. You had to justify yourself to the authority. That is no longer the world of corporate law. Today, if you want to create a corporation, we could, I could log on right now and form a corporation within the next five minutes. And I could include in my charter a provision that would say, my purpose is all purposes that are legal. Now, that's a remarkable change, right? It used to be you had to go in front of a, char- uh, of a, of a sovereign and ask them for permission and show why you were going to be good for the state. Nowadays, you can just create it immediately. Um, now, there's a couple of reasons why I think that evolution has occurred. One is, right, just legally we, speaking, we have changed the law. Over time, we've come to, whether it's through corporate lobbying or through uh, this perception that we need more corporations, whether it's the modern world, corporations, they're moving too quickly to be able to charter, to ask for a, a authority every time. But nowadays, it's just, there, there's been a change in the law. Now you can go and you can create a corporation by state law through the Secretary of State within a matter of minutes. A second point, though, is that there's also been a cultural shift. I think there's been a cultural shift in the way that we view corporations. Used to be we thought of them as a tool, right? This tool that would be used to promote the common good through the pursuit of commercial endeavors. You had to justify yourself to the sovereign. Nowadays, we don't think of that. Um, We have become come to think of corporations as in some way embodying what the West is, right? And this is tied very very closely to uh, the the Cold War. So during the Cold War, there was this grand battle between the ideologies of the West and the Soviet Union, between communism and uh, democracy, and between capitalism and communism. And so in that process, there came to be uh, this widely, I think, accepted view that part of what defined the Western way of life was the fact that we were democratic, but also that we were capitalist, right? So now it's, it starts becoming a part of our ethos that what makes us superior, why do people want to align with the West rather than the Soviet Union? Well, we've got corporations and corporations are great. They're the heroes They where we lionize them. Um, and so that was another important feature. So by the 1970s, you've got, right, Milton Friedman coming out saying the sole purpose of a corporation is to uh, maximize profits. Right. So this is would not have been something that would have been really even thinkable uh, in the times of Queen Elizabeth.
1: But, but isn't there also
0: a, a story
1: of, you know, we have a much richer and denser body of law that provides, you know, alternative checks and balances. Right. So if we're concerned about the protecting the interests of labor, you know, we have we have labor law for that. If we are interested in protecting sort of the competitive environment. You know, we have antitrust law for that. And if we're interested in, in protecting against impact on third parties, you know, we have a more developed tort law. We have EPA, you know, environmental regulation. So, so we have all these other bodies of law that have kind of emerged in parallel so that, you know, the, the corporation doesn't have to go back to the sovereign and say, hey, can I do this? It's like, well, what do you mean can you do this? Like, go reference tort law and see if you can do it. You know, go reference the, the you know, the, the the regulations and see if you can do it. You, you don't need to come back and ask me every single time if you want to do something, right?
0: Yeah, I think that's right. And I do think that part of it, right, is this idea that nowadays we have a pretty extensive set of laws governing what corporations can do. Many people would say they are too extensive, right? They're too, the regulations on corporations are too extensive and they prohibit them from acting sort of nimbly to respond to the market. Um, and that is, I think, part of uh, the story of the history of the corporation. And and you see this arc throughout the book, right? Each chapter will focus on a corporation that creates some new innovation that really does create value for the world, right? The Union Pacific and the transcontinental railroad dramatically changes the way that the American economy works. Now, all of a sudden you can move across the United States in a matter of days rather than months. Exxon allows us to have gas in our cars. (laughs) In fact, they sort of, uh, they were originally standard oil, Uh, And they were the ones that helped spur, along with Henry Ford, the revolution in automobiles, right? So these are all things that have directly influenced the quality of life of Americans throughout history. But there is always a downside, right? And so we have discovered over time what those flaws are. When there was the railroad revolution in America and the transcontinental railroad helped develop the economy throughout the Western United States and the Eastern United States. We also discovered some of the dangers that would come from railroads. And one of those was monopoly, right? They were the, the original uh, monopolists, the original robber barons were the railroads who would come in and they look. there was only one railroad that needed to be ro- uh, laid. Once it was laid, there was no one else who would, who, they didn't, you, don't, you wouldn't want to lay two tracks. And so you'd have one railroad and that one railroad would be monopoly and they could charge what they wanted. And of course, a lot of the robber barons would seek to establish those monopolies and then raise rates. Now, of course, the irony of that is that uh, railroads are nowadays oftentimes thought of as a natural monopoly. That is, they, they, they are best when they are a monopoly. <laughs> so in a way, we learned about monopolies from the worst example of them. Um, but we did eventually come to craft regulations to respond to the problem of monopoly, uh, right? There was the Sherman Antitrust Act that starts to regulate just how you can use your power as in the market to exclude rivals and to uh, establish dominant market positions. So that is certainly an element of the history of corporations that whenever we have a new corporate innovation, if it's sufficiently successful in such a way that it really changes our lives, we start discovering what the downsides are. And then society decides whether or not they're so bad that we need to craft new regulations to resolve them. Well, even though it's a story of innovations, so much doesn't change,
1: right? I mean, there's so much in these histori- in these stories that are instructive of what's happening today. So uh, you teach law. So law is by its very nature constantly dipping into the historical archives, right? Because, you know, you have Pearson versus Post and Dodge v. Ford and so forth. But, you know, when I'm teaching in, in business strategy and finance, people sometimes wonder, you know, why am I digging up these old stories? But, you know, even when you're studying the Medicis, I mean, you do a good job of articulating how they used something kind of like a franchising system right, to align the incentives of the of the periphery and the center, right? You talk, uh, when you talk about the East India Company, right, you talk about how this idea of permanent capital versus project uh, finance creates some tensions. And, and so it, it's funny because you look at what the bill of exchange is, it's highly illustrative of kind of some of the things you're seeing in fintech right now. And when you look at the tension that the East India Company faced, we just saw the Carlisle Group and and these other private equity groups sort of issue permanent capital because of the frustrations that they have with sort of these 10-year funds, right? So how useful do you think it is to reference these historical examples? I mean, do you ever get any pushback when you're dealing with folks who say, hey, look, man, I just want to go out and be a corporate lawyer, and I just want to go out and do my transactions.
0: Like, I don't really need to learn about Dodge v. Ford or anything like this. Yeah, I mean, it's a good question, right? How much can you learn from history? I think that you can learn a lot, One is that, right, that it's useful to think about is to see these arcs, right? To see what happens, what has happened in the past in order to understand what might happen in the future, right? So you can look back at ancient Rome and see how the first inklings of why we first as a society started thinking about, well, maybe we need an economic institution that can unite all of our forces into a single body and allow them to act on their own and protect the shareholders so they can get capital and get back to uh, the original purposes behind these ideas. Because I think sometimes they get lost, those original purposes get lost, and then we just get bogged down in these sort of debates that are up in the air that don't have any grounding in fact or history. And so I think that is part of the rationale behind uh, writing this book. Another part of the book is an argument. My argument in the book is that we actually need to go back and rediscover that original spirit of civic virtue. And I do get a lot of pushback on that. On that point, so I do think there's a there's a perspective that says, uh, sure, you you, you know, you, even if you accept my argument, right, that corporations were initially in ancient Rome and Renaissance Florence and Gilded Age America, even if initially corporations were created for this purpose to promote the common good, that's the past. It doesn't mean that we should still have them seeking to promote the common good, and I think that is a perfectly plausible argument. A perfectly plausible argument to say. Who cares why we created corporations? That doesn't work for us anymore. We're going to go with a new model of the corporation. I think that's a plausible argument. I hope that in my book I give some arguments for why we actually we shouldn't abandon that mission. Why when we abandon that mission we lead to all these problems. Right? It leads to all these problems that society has dealt with in the past and has solved in all these complicated ways. Right. So if we abandon this idea, we can lead to monopoly. We can lead to right harms to the environment. It can lead to harms to employees, to shareholders, right? So we've crafted this system for a reason. And let's go back and discover what that reason was so we don't repeat the mistakes of the past. So suppose, I mean, if we all agree that the purpose of the
1: corporation is to serve the public good, it doesn't necessarily help a manager to understand his or her role, right? The beauty of the Friedman approach is that it really forces the managers to focus on on a single metric, right? But if you if you tell a manager, you know, by the way, your job is to kind of promote the public good, right? I mean, that just opens up such a can of worms, right? I mean, you know, we go back to the Dodge versus Ford case. I mean, you could and and I think Ford did argue that just about any set of actions, whether it's pushing money out to shareholders or reinvesting the money, right, could be construed as being in the service of the public good. Does this make it life more difficult for, for managers? I mean, shouldn't we just set up a system that would allow the managers to just focus on on one thing, but have it designed and orchestrated in a Hamiltonian-like way so that, so that their their greed is inadvertently in the service of the public good rather than uh, consciously and, and, uh, and
0: directly in the service of the public good? I think that's a perfectly reasonable argument to say that the best way for us to promote the common good and indeed even for corporations to promote the common good, is to think only about profits. I think that's a reasonable argument. I don't believe it. Uh, I think that we have seen throughout history that when managers, when boards of directors, when shareholders think only about profit, it can lead to harms to society. Right? We know what those harms are. Economists have identified them. Philosophers have identified them. They talk about them in different ways, but I think it's hard to deny that the sole single-minded pursuit of profit sometimes, indeed maybe even often, leads to harms to society. Hard not to think about right, the most obvious one that that everyone is talking about today, which is right, environmental harm, right? So environmental harm, classic case of an externality that isn't fully internalized by the individual corporation. Uh, that's a scenario where a corporation could be more profitable if it damaged the environment because it doesn't bear all the costs of the harm it does to the environment. And so maybe that means maybe that means that we should have simply governments come in and establish all the rules that will create the perfect environment. But as we've seen, governments also sometimes fail at that. And that is why part of the reason why I come through, from a personal perspective, I don't think you need to accept this argument to accept the arguments from the book. But from a personal perspective, I find uh, this belief that we should have corporations and managers and executives thinking about broader issues and not solely profit. And it sort of acts as a corrective, right? Because Governments don't always act perfectly. Corporations don't always act perfectly. Shareholders don't always act perfectly. And so we need these broader-minded individuals to be thinking about civic virtue and how we can promote the common good, because some of these other mechanisms sometimes fail. So it's always useful to have that broader perspective. So that's the argument in the book, but I don't think you have to accept that to accept uh, the historical perspective. Yeah.
1: Well, I mean, certainly I think there's an increased concern with what we might call corporate social responsibility or thinking about stakeholders. And there's definitely been some pushback against the Friedman approach. Do you think that's reflective of an acknowledgement of governmental failure? I mean, have we sort of lost faith in the political process as a
0: way of addressing, you know, these important issues like climate change? Yeah, I, I think so. I think it's hard to, hard, to, hard to disagree with the fact that there is a widespread disillusionment with the ability of government to solve our most pressing needs. And so how do we, where do we look for alternatives? Well, the other most powerful actor in our lives is the corporation. So let's hope that our corporation can become more profitable or at least more protective of our interests. Um, one thing that I will say, and this was just a, was just sort of an aside on Milton Friedman, because I think that he is, and I've sort of misquoted him earlier. I think he's widely misunderstood on this point, right? So he, he's generally quoted as saying, the sole purpose of the corporation should be to maximize its profits or to increase its profits. He, he's actually, he says it differently in various op-eds and various books, uh, but he oftentimes includes this little caveat at the end where he says, it's supposed to increase its price. So, its sole obligation should be to increase its profits, comma, in accordance with law and cultural expectations. Right. so law, sure, that seems pretty pretty obvious, but the cultural expectations part is a lot bigger. <laughs> That seems like a major caveat to an argument that we're taking, is saying well, it should be to increase his profits, so long as everybody thinks its goal is to increase his profits. If that, in other words, if he it, it's, he seems to be admitting that the culture expects them to do something else, right? If the norms are, think about the environment, think about the 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 interests of your employees, think about the interests of uh, your consumers. Right. Then so that seems like a very different Milton Friedman than Milton Friedman that we oftentimes talk about in our right in our courses as sort of a straw man.
1: Yeah. But it seems like it's also kind of a continuation of that cultural trend that you described, right? Where we're putting our faith in the corporations, right? You know, we think that, you know, they're the ones that are gonna solve all of these global problems, right? Rather than the public sector. I mean, It's less of a pushback against corporations as much as it is kind of a doubling down on our our belief in in the corporations, right?
0: Yeah, and as we see, it it puts managers in very difficult positions, right? Particularly when they're operating in environments, right, where there's real division on the issue. You think about the environment, on social causes, where you'll have, indeed, individual states saying, we're not going to invest our money in any, any fund that has even talks about the environment or even talks about social causes. And then you have other states that say, we will not invest our funds unless you talk about and promote climate causes and, and, social, and social changes. How does a corporate manager sort of navigate that environment? And it's simply really hard, right? It's not something that they are traditionally trained in. Certainly um, many business schools are starting to have courses on that. And we talk about it a lot in, our, uh, in, in law as well, about how the, the shifting landscape of corporate law and the effect of ESG causes uh, on corporate law. But they're really difficult issues. Corporate, it puts managers in really difficult positions. It's unclear where it's going to go in the future, but it does it does say that it, it suggests this wider cultural shift that says we are turning increasingly to corporations to solve society's biggest problems.
1: Yeah, I did a podcast recently where we spent a lot of time talking about Walmart and, you know, it, it became clear that the employees and the customers are coming from the same group, right? So, you know, by pushing prices down, you know, you're benefiting the customer. You know, the workers are perhaps getting lower wages, but the price of everything they're buying is going down, right? So it's harder to think of these as different constituencies. And then, you know, similarly with shareholders, I was speaking with a colleague who was teaching a course on private equity, and he said he was a little frustrated sometimes with his MBA students because they thought that private equity was benefiting the shareholders at the expense of the the employees. But of course, he pointed out that the, the, the investors were all employees of the public sector. Right. So the people to whom he owes the fiduciary duty are the firemen and the, and the policemen and the, and the school teachers of the state of California. Right. And so trying to figure out how to you know, work on behalf of all of these different constituencies, it's sometimes complicated by this notion that they're, they're not always, their interests aren't always in conflict. Right.
0: Yeah, that's right. And, and the private equity industry is a great example of this. Right, where we have this, we think of them as sort of the hyper-capitalists. Right, They're finan- they're driven by financial engineering. They acquire companies solely for the purpose of selling them. It was a model that was first pioneered by a KKR uh, in the 1970s, sort of ro- rose to prominence in the 1980s as these leveraged buyouts became popular. And then, of course, the famous book, Barbarians at the Gate, where you have KKR attempting and eventually taking over RJR Nabisco with this major it's your billion dollar deal. But the question that corporate lawyers were asking, that investment bankers were asking was, why was this model, Where where is all this value coming from? How are they able to make so much money? And questions, it's been answered in numerous, numerous articles, scholarly articles, the press, but it comes from many different sources. One is tax, right? They are able to drive down tax because uh, they typically have li- le- uh, highly leveraged deals, which end up lowering the taxes of the companies they acquire. Uh, they also drive operational changes, the ways in which companies operate change. They, they highly incentivize the managers to run their companies more efficiently. But they're, ha- they're also, frankly, a lot of the money actually is going to the private equity institutions themselves, right? The, they take large fees, the two, the classic 2 and 20 2% management fee, and then the 20% carried interest. Right. So those are large fees that are going to the private equity industry. There's a, um, I was at a conference recently at, at Oxford uh, with a professor uh, at Oxford named uh, Ludovic Falipu. Uh, and he, he described it, he has a paper recently called The Billionaire Factory. and <laughs> As you can guess, who are the billionaires? Well, a lot of them are, right, they're coming from the private equity industry because the fees are so high. And so there is that conflict of interest, sort of at heart, uh, at the heart of the private equity industry, which is, right, so we have public sector, funds, including I work at Texas A&M. So the Texas A&M endowment is invested heavily in private equity. So my retirement is dependent on how well these private equity managers do. And so I'm not so happy when the managers take huge fees. I would love for them to take lower fees. But there's this this conflict between the, the investors, the endowments, the institutions who are investing in the private equity. Private equity has some conflicts with the companies that they acquire, right? So they haven't solved these conflicts of interest that are at the heart of the joint stock company. Uh, but they've shifted them around in ways that make it really interesting and uh, and raise all sorts of regulatory issues.
1: Now you've also written quite a bit on blockchain and kind of decentralized finance. And I was wondering if you could you could talk about that because you know, I teach a course also on the topic and people seem to be fascinated with the notion of a DAO, right? This idea of a decentralized, autonomous organization. And they think, well, you know, this is great. This is democratic, right? And, And I think that that the implication is that, you know, a a corporation is not democratic. But, you know, we've had similar type organizations, right? We've had cooperatives for a long time and they work in certain circumstances, but they're very, very hard to manage. So what do you suppose is behind this sort of grassroots interest and uh, obsession with kind of decentralized systems like cryptocurrencies? And perhaps these DAOs.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. I think there's a for me there's there's two parts of the story, right? So one of the story is right this right this optimistic vision that says there's this belief that cryptocurrency started primarily as, as Bitcoin and a challenge to the financial system, right? So and so I think that what was driving that, and we we have sort of the initial scribblings and blog posts of Satoshi Nakamoto who for, who first wrote this. It was an anonymous paper. We don't know who he is. He wrote this paper about the, the white paper that described what Bitcoin would be. Uh, and he was taking issue with our financial system. He was saying that our financial system is rotten, right? This was 2009. The financial crisis is occurring. These big investment banks are going under and it seems to be all at our sort of redounding to the cost of the rest of society. Uh, and so it was a vision. I think that was what drew many of the fir- of, of the first sort of users of Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies was this idea that, Our financial system doesn't work. We need to find a system that doesn't have these corrupt intermediaries. And so we're going to create a decentralized system that has no intermediaries. And I think that's sort of the optimistic vision, right? We're going to craft a better system right now. All of a sudden we have, we're in a world where we have massive computing power. It's located all around the world. The internet should be able to equalize uh, sort of authorities and powers. Uh, And let's have a system that's run by all of us and for all of us. I think that's the optimistic vision of why it was, why it took off. The negative vision is, well, what was driving a lot of the initial transactional interest in cryptocurrencies and others? Well, it was an idea, the idea of regulatory arbitrage. Let's get around the regulatory system because we want to do things that the government doesn't want us to do. So what does the government not want you to do? Doesn't want you to buy and sell drugs, right? It doesn't want you to be stealing or, or buying other people's credit cards um, and all sorts of all the terrible things that the dark net is used for, uh, that's all used in what the currency of choice for the dark net it used to be Bitcoin. And now there's other cryptocurrencies as well. So I think that's sort of the negative vision of what drove it. And the truth is probably somewhere in between. There's a lot of interest that was driven by illegal, illegal uses of the currency, and then a lot of interest that was driven by this techno utopian vision of the internet. Nowadays, it's evolved into a much bigger ecosystem than I had predicted, and certainly than many many people predicted. And it's also expanded into new types. It's not just cryptocurrency. Many of the most promising uses today, I think, are for things that are not just a sort of finance, but rather sort of the DAOs and the record keeping, decentralized record keeping that might be cheaper.
1: Well, what I find fascinating is that most of the people who are proponents of decentralized systems. As soon as they get their hands on cryptocurrency, the very first thing they do is they park it with a centralized exchange, right? And so I think in many ways, it's more centralized even than the mainstream financial system, right? Where you have just a few miners controlling the mining system, just a few exchanges controlling the, the transfer, and uh, you know a few coders who are controlling the, the code. So, I mean, it seems like this idea. I mean, centralization is in some ways an inevitable, but the acknowledgement of that seems to be something that people are unwilling to confront.
0: Yeah. I mean, so the way that it has worked is that, right, the average consumer doesn't want to go in and sort of sift through the code of each cryptocurrency in order to understand how to mine the software, how to mine the cryptocurrency and get it right through the truly decentralized models that it was first created for. Uh, what they want to do is be able to go click a button and connected to their bank account and go buy some, you know, Dogecoin. Uh, that's what the average consumer wants. And so that has driven this mode, this, this sort of centralization within the sector and the centralization in cryptocurrency is in a couple of ways, right? So one is, uh, this point that you mentioned about how mining power, that is these large servers located around the world and typically places where you can get low cost energy. Uh, these are the ones that maintain and create new currency and make sure that the system is working and process new transactions right so that mining has become highly centralized because right the economy's a scale uh, if you have a bunch of servers and they get have got the fastest chips so you can invest in people to make sure that they're running at the fastest speed and it requires a lot of computing power so the people who are actually maintaining the system are becoming more and more centralized uh, there's also this other element that's also centralized which is the cryptocurrency exchanges where the average consumer goes and buys and sells cryptocurrency It's the coin bases of the world. So in actual fact, right now we have very centralized maintainers of the system and also systems where you can go out and buy and sell the currencies. So it's a lot more centralized uh, than it was hoped to be in the beginning. Whether that uh, makes us more optimistic or less optimistic about the future of of cryptocurrency is, I think, an open question. Um, It certainly has allowed the government an easy entree into regulating the industry because they can just go and they can subpoena These corporations that are actually running the the crypto world. So now I want to go back to your your dream of
1: connecting the public and the private sector. I mean, it seems like there is a kind of a unified theory of what we might call governance, right? I mean, when we think of constitutional law, we're thinking about how do you create checks and balances between the different parts of the government and could be, you know, within the federal government for instance you know legislative judicial executive it could be between the the states and the, the federal government okay but but i think antitrust law seems to be kind of an extension of that because what we're trying to do is is create a a balance of power between both the private and the public sphere but also right between companies and we want to make sure that companies don't get too powerful vis-a-vis other companies and don't get too powerful vis-a-vis the government should should we think of antitrust law competition law some of these other laws as kind of extensions of constitutional law i mean is the purpose of these different branches of law all about promoting
0: the the commonwealth yeah i mean that that's a, that's a really great question right? and it's one of the big the big issues of our time is what do we do with antitrust right and right nowadays it's a, engaging for a while right it used to be this musty topic that only that was only the few people in Wall Street who were dealing with. Now it's really an issue that's front and center, largely because of big tech, right? So big tech, we're all concerned today with the power of big tech to shape our lives, to drive up prices, to uh, whether they're doing a good enough job with misinformation, with social media, with protecting users. So there's these big issues about uh, these institutions, these corporations that are monopolizing our lives and what kind of a role antitrust That is the regulation of competition. What kind of a role antitrust can play in that? I think that if you look back at the statutes, the debates around the Sherman Antitrust, there's a long beginning with Bork, but there's been you know there's a huge amount of literature discussing just precisely what it was the Congress was thinking when they enacted (laughs) the Sherman Antitrust Act along with the other acts. Uh, But I think that when you read the language of the acts, it's pretty broad, right? So it's outlining monopolies, monopolizing instant industries as well as unfair trade practices; uh those are all really broad terms and i think that you could use just looking at the strict language of the statute antitrust could be a much bigger area than it currently is and i think that there are currently arguments in favor of and 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 our uh, lena khan our current ftc leader is is pushing some of those changes right just to say let's use antitrust let's use these broad powers to regulate the way in which competition takes place. That was the true purpose behind the antitrust laws. And so I think that if you read the statutes, uh, it's perfectly consistent with the statutes to use antitrust more broadly to as sort of the, the entree for understanding and the proper role of competition in corporations and corporations in society. That's a different question though about whether those assertions of authority are going to withstand judicial scrutiny today. And I don't know if those assertions of authority are going to uh, withstand judicial scrutiny today, largely because of the history that has narrowed down the the areas in which antitrust can apply. The areas in which the Sherman Antitrust actually can say, "Corporation, you're engaging this practice. We think that it's unfair. We want you to stop it." That's going to be tough. You're gonna. That's going to be a tough argument today in today's courts. You'll need to show something more. Um, and so that is why I think that there is a uh, there is a the initial purpose of the statutes, which is much broader than the way that they are currently read today.
1: Now, uh, one of the stories that I really liked was going back to the very first chapter about how Augustus wound up bringing all of the tax farmers and the publicani kind of inside the state, right? And I guess prior to that, the government didn't have much faith in its own administrative capacity. And then after that, they were able to establish something that looks like a bureaucracy. And, And, you know, this story is repeated in other parts of the world. You know, I'm more familiar with the English story and how... You know, tax farming was eliminated or restricted in England in ways that it wasn't in France. But you know, even when you fast forward to Abraham Lincoln, Abraham Lincoln was convinced that you know the government was not capable of building out the institutional architecture necessary for building a railroad, even though they had just built out this massive army right for conquering the the South. So, I mean, when when do governments, how do they understand their own limitations? And do you think they have a tendency to kind of overestimate or underestimate their own limitations? Do you think that, you know, is it better to err on the side of overestimating administrative competence? Or is it better to err by overestimating the the pathologies of private
0: greed? I wish I I knew the answer to that. Certainly those are both problems (laughs) that exist and that have caused all sorts of trouble throughout history. Right, the, they, they, over, they underestimate their ability. It, as, you, as you point out, right, in ancient Rome and during the Roman Republic, they largely farmed out taxes, that is the collection of taxes to individual entities, uh, the Societates Publica Norm, that they would auction off the right to collect taxes to these initial corporations, and these corporations would go out and collect them. They did that because they thought that they didn't have the expertise to be able to go out and collect the taxes or the, or the manpower. Now of course what happens uh, is that as soon as they do that, well the corporations, they you know, they give in their their bid of uh, the amount of money they need to go to the Roman Senate. Then they go off and they just start enslaving people in the provinces. Okay, you could then and, and part of the terms was you could collect as much taxes as you wanted. So, so they'd go over, they would pay some, some fee, and they will go over and do whatever they wanted in the province. So um, you just hear these awful stories of them going abroad and, and oppressing the provinces, which is a real problem from Rome's perspective, too. But it takes them a while to realize that it's not so good when their economic institutions are going down there, oppressing and enslaving the provinces. And so I think that is a great example of, in a way, Rome underestimating its power, because soon, 60 years later, after the height of the Societates Publica Norm in the first century B.C., emperor augustus starts bringing in tax collecting authorities to his own administration and then it becomes right the empire in which the societates publica norm the initial corporation basically disappears from the scene so it maybe could have happened earlier but on the other side there is this other danger right which is saying uh well governments want to accrue power too much and they want to take away these authorities from corporations and so one example of that is, is as you mentioned the sort of the heavy regulation, there were all these instances soon after uh, Abraham Lincoln of regulating the, the ways in which uh, railroads could do business, right? So the ways in which they, how much they could charge, uh, where they had to lay routes. Um, there was there was all sorts of corruption, and the only way that the, these railroads could get any business done was paying bribes left and right. Right, so that's the, that's the flip side of it, right? Is that if governments are too optimistic about their powers to decide things, then corporations are going to really struggle to succeed, and that will also be bad for society. So in a way, right, the history of the corporations is showing uh, that push and pull between uh, giving more authority to corporations uh, and taking it away and putting it back in the hands of of the people.
1: Yeah, what's interesting, we're seeing this play out a bit in Russia at the moment, right, where Putin has kind of privatized a portion of his war effort, right, giving it to the Wagner Group, the Wagner Group, which is a private company. And, you know, there may be some evidence that they may be more more effective in some ways, but I think Putin's starting to wonder whether or not he has given away perhaps a bit too much power and, you know, he has to rein it back in if he wants to
0: keep his job. Yeah, that's right. It's a constant problem. I mean, the one thing that I would say is, is going back to the, we haven't spoken too much about uh, the sort of the development of the private equity industry in recent years. And when and that's one of the one of the, I think, part of the narrative of the last fifty years of the history of private equity is that they have also increasingly there is this very interrelated relationship between private equity and the public, right? Because on the one hand, private equity, it's hyper capitalized, hyper private, but they're raising funds from the public, from public institutions and endowments. And then second of all, particularly in the last decade or so, they're increasingly running things that we think of as being sort of public services, right? Hospitals, schools. I was just reading some article about sort of play places for kids, right? So they're running things that we traditionally have thought of as being largely public focused. And so maybe we need to think more broadly about the kinds of obligations that an institution that's hyper-capitalized has, uh, or those institutions, what sort of obligations those institutions have when they're running public-minded services.
1: Well, not to mention sort of condominium associations and business improvement districts, right? I mean, there's been a recent controversy over Disney Corporation and its tax authority, right? I mean, it's kind of hard to tell whether or not Disney is acting as a public or private agent when it kind of taxes the people who live within those boundaries or the entities that live within those boundaries, and then it provides public services.
0: Yeah. And I do think that gets to the broader question, right? Of how, how is it that we're going to define the common good? Right. And so obviously, uh, that is a question that is far beyond the, uh, my expertise or, or the expertise of the book, but it has been a, it has been a question has been a constant throughout the history of the corporation is that even if we have created them to promote the common good, well, who gets to decide what the common good is and that today hugely debatable and historically was also hugely debatable, but who got to decide changed right in ancient rome it was the senate and uh renaissance florence it was the guilds in this in the senioria the government of florence all relatively small groups and queen Queen elizabeth got to decide whether the east india company were good for society right nowadays it isn't in the hands of a group of 50 50 people or one person Uh, it's in the hands of democracy right now it is the united states it is the entire nation that gets to decide it and the question now is Does that make it? I mean, is there anybody even getting to decide this anymore? Is anybody getting, is anybody, who gets to weigh in on whether or not private equity is contributing to the common good? And have we just sort of relinquished it? Have we simply stopped asking that question? And I hope that we start asking that question again <laughs> and start defining it because otherwise, right, it, it'll just resort to a system which you don't, we don't, we don't even think about whether or not corporations are contributing to the common good. Right. And just as we speak, Uh, I think the SEC has
1: just made moves that indicates that the days of the wild west of cryptocurrencies may be coming to an end. So, I mean, that's another example of, I guess, where the government yields to the private sector a lot of the innovation, right? So just like the Romans would allow the, the borderlands to be run kind of privately, but then gradually would absorb them, right? Facebook was allowed to kind of move fast and break things initially, but now it's being held to a much higher standard so too is the cryptocurrency world right
0: yeah the cryptocurrency world is is in for reckoning and it already has got a bit of a reckoning over the last year or so as you mentioned the SEC I had not seen that news but I know the SEC has been looking extensively into uh, and has been charging a lot of these crypto companies with securities fraud um, so I imagine there'll be there'll be more action to say Listen, you know, you've been we know that there's been a large number of cryptocurrency institutions that are operating in the shadows that aren't registering their securities that aren't registering as exchanges. Right. That that's going to be need to we're going to need to put that to an end. Now, of course, this is all going to be subject to judicial review. And so we'll see whether they're uh, how courts rule. Right. The SEC is not I not have unlimited jurisdiction. So it might be that they would strike down some of the efforts by the SEC. But then it'll be—it'll come back to the people. <laughs> and so the question will be, will Congress be able to act and change the way in which we regulate cryptocurrency to stop the kinds of sort of billion-dollar fraud that we're seeing happen with disturbing frequency?
1: Well, William, thanks so much for joining me. Uh, this book here is called For Profit, History of Corporations. And for those of you who are interested in corporations, definitely check it out. I mean, it's got eight chapters on eight different companies, each of which represent a historical era and also a specific problem with the duties and responsibilities of corporations. And each one comes with a lesson for, I guess, prudential management of corporations. And also the book, Blockchain Democracy, Technology, Law, and the Rise of the Crowd. Thanks so much. Talk
0: to you soon. Thanks so much for having me on. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes,